You're listening to the free preview episode of On Belief, a podcast about cults by Karen Geyer. To hear the entire episode, go to patreon.com forward slash Karen Geyer, K-A-R-E-N-G-E-I-E-R, and sign up. It's only $5 for the entire series. This is On Belief, a podcast about cults by Karen Geyer. Episode 11, Call Topping and Nexium Trial Update with E.J. Dixon. Minutes ago, a federal jury here in the Eastern District of New York returned verdicts convicting Keith Ranieri on all counts in his federal indictment. With these convictions, Ranieri stands convicted of racketeering, sex trafficking, and related crimes. Over the last seven weeks, this trial has revealed that Ranieri, who portrayed himself as a savant and a genius, was in fact a master manipulator, a con man, and the crime boss of a cult-like organization involved in sex trafficking, child pornography, extortion, compelled abortions, branding, degradation, and humiliation. His crimes and the crimes of his co-conspirators ruined marriages, careers, fortunes, and lives. The evidence proved that Ranieri was truly a modern-day Svengali. I want to thank the superb investigation and prosecution team that made his conviction possible. Assistant United States Attorneys Moira Kim Penza, Tanya Hajar, Kevin Trowell, Karen Orenstein, and Mark Lesko. Paralegals Terry Carby, Samantha Ward, Nicole Minaccio, and Alex Minsk. I want to thank our partners in the FBI, especially Special Agents Michael Weniger and Michael Lever. I want to thank our partners in IRS, HSI, and the New York State Police. I especially want to thank our colleagues in the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Northern District of New York who made significant contributions to this effort. Finally, I want to thank the judge and the jury, most of all, for so carefully considering the evidence over this long and difficult trial. Thanks to the efforts of these many participants, Keith Ranieri's crime spree has ended, and his victims will finally see justice. Thank you. Maura, can we hear from you a few words from you, please? That was Richard Donahue, prosecutor in the Nexium trial, describing the verdict. Keith Ranieri guilty on all seven counts. Today we'll be discussing the trial and the verdict with E.J. Dixon from Rolling Stone. She's also here to talk about a unique phenomenon called cult hopping. In episode one, I discussed people leaving cults with cult expert Rick Allen Ross, and he described that the people most impervious to cult training and to cult induction are people who have previously left. Cult hopping tells a different story. 
It is a phenomenon among a certain percentage of people who leave cults that they will then turn to another group to become a part of. I spoke to someone at the International Cultic Studies Association who sent me a, a paper on this phenomenon, which I will share on the website, and it describes people who leave cults going to other groups in certain categories. They're either dabblers, meaning that they're always looking for something new, something interesting to be a part of, or they are people who are serial cult hoppers who are what is described in the paper as impatient sensation seekers, meaning that they believe that the pursuit of knowledge is something that happens for your entire life and that you're never fully done. As a result of this pattern of behavior, a lot of them will become disillusioned with a group and seek something else. Hoppers are not unique to cults. They are a function that we see in, in any kind of organized group, whether it be somebody who decides that they want to be in CrossFit and then they become a yoga instructor and then they become a, you know, a Pilates or bar method instructor. We also see it in other types of organizations. There are many people who, for instance, leave a certain multi-level marketing organization and go on to another one. It's a very common thing among a certain kind of seeker personality, which is also the kind of person who is more likely to join a cult. Hopping happens among organized traditional religions as well. We know that there are people that leave Catholicism and go to Baptist designations. There are people that leave evangelical organizations and go to different organizations. This happens quite frequently. According to the International Cultic Studies Association, there are certain types of cult hoppers that believe that if they combine the best parts of some of these groups that they've been part of, they can build almost like a quilt of ideas that they can then use to apply towards their own life. EJ is going to explain the motivations of two specific people that she spoke to about cult hopping. But something that isn't clear in any of the data, and the data is very slim because obviously people who are in cults don't want to discuss what has happened in their lives, and they're often precluded from doing so. So what's not clear is, are these people that need to have a certain kind of structure in their lives, so they have to move from group to group, or are there other hidden motivations for someone leaving a group and joining another? In EJ's article on the topic, she argues that for some people, they'll be in a group for a while, have a disagreement with the leadership, or have a disagreement with a particular piece of doctrine, and that's what forces them to get out. But they still believe that, that the tenets or the basics are still worth following, so then they seek out something that will support them in a way that that group used to before there was a rift. What's particularly sinister is that cult leaders understand this behavior and they understand that a certain percentage of people that come to them have come to them from somewhere else. And this works to their advantage when it comes time to recruit because they can say, oh, the thing that you were in definitely is a cult, but we're definitely not a cult and we can definitely help you. And we definitely don't have any of the kinds of controlling mechanisms or things that you didn't like about your old group. 
there's something deeply, deeply sinister about taking somebody who you already know has had that kind of a relationship and using that against them to then form a new follower relationship with them. So we're going to get into that and more with EJ Dixon. But for right now, EJ is going to update us on the Nexium trial. Welcome, EJ. At the time of this taping, it is the day after the verdict against Keith Raniere. So EJ, can you tell us what it was like when they delivered the verdict? Yeah, um, good question. It was a really crazy scene. Um, so we, I mean, I can only speak from my perspective as, as a journalist covering the case, but um, they started deliberating at about 930 um, and it was a seven count indictment. So we figured, which is a pretty hefty indictment, um, and the, and the charges were pretty robust. So we figured, oh, you know, like they're probably going to have a verdict, you know, maybe tomorrow, uh, maybe Friday. Um, but we got a note from, we got word that there was a note from the jury at about 145 and I was actually doing another interview I was on the phone in the media room when we got the note and everybody started there was just like so much hubbub in the media and everybody just started running you know directly to the courtroom and um and I had to like end my interview preemptively which I felt really bad about um I was just like no this like you don't understand like it was a less than four hour deliberation like this is huge you know seven count indictment um, so we went to the courtroom and, um, we figured that it was not going to look good for Keith, um, because it's pretty rare on a seven count indictment for a jury to only take, to take that little time to deliberate. Um, and, and, but I, I, I personally was not expecting guilty on all counts. And when they said guilty on all counts, I was a little surprised, but the, the atmosphere in the courtroom was really, it was cathartic. I mean, that's the best word for it because there were people who had been engaged in litigation with Nexium for 15 years who were there, who had been attending the trial every day and um, just deeply emotional. They were in tears. Um, it, it was a really, it was a really emotional scene. Some people have said that this is a precedent setting verdict that now victims of other cults might have more legal recourse in the courts What's your feel on that? I think that's possible, but I also think, I mean, in many ways, this trial was really very singular. Um, the testimony was so emotional and the charges were so, in many ways, lurid. Um, you know, there we heard testimony about branding. We heard testimony about coerced sex. We heard testimony about, you know, a sex dungeon with paddling and, you know, as penalties for perceived misdeeds. I, I mean, I think that it would have been very hard for the jury not to convict, you know, based on the emotionality of the testimony alone. So while I do think that this could set some precedent for similarly coercive groups, um, I do think that this trial was very exceptional in a lot of ways. So I would sort of be careful to say that this you know, has has really wide-ranging implications. Do you think that now there's maybe an opportunity for a civil suit against Keith Raniere or against Nexium, the organization, based on this verdict? I'm, I really, I don't think so. Um, I, I, I don't think, so. I'm not sure. Uh, I, I don't think, 
he has a lot of money. <laughs> um, I, th I think they, they had a legal fund. My understanding is they had a legal fund set aside um, that was largely financed by Claire Braunchman uh, to the tune of more than $14 million. Um, my understanding is that that fund is pretty much run dry um, for all of the defendants involved in this trial. Uh, I, I don't think that they... I think if there were restitution, it would be, you know, fairly minimal is what I would expect. Let's talk about Keith's defense in court. Did you get the sense that his lawyers ever had a good day in court or that they mounted a decent defense? I mean, I think his defense did a great job, actually. Um, for the, I, I think that, you know, his lead defense attorney, Mark Agnifilo in particular, I think he's a really... He's a really experienced lawyer. He has 29 years as a criminal lawyer, um, and he's worked on a number of different types of cases. Um, he's a really good orator. That was very clear, especially for his closing arguments. Um, he's he's very compelling. I thought that he made. I thought that he did the best that he could with what he had, which was, you know, a lot of evidence that was not in his client's favor. Honestly, um, a lot. Of, and he said this during the press conference. He said this was, you know, he's tried death penalty cases. This is one of the most deeply emotional trials that he's ever been a part of um, because the testimony was just so loaded. And I, I think I think it would have been I think it was a really tough job for his defense team to walk in there and try to explain away all the evidence that was there against their client. And I think they did the best they could um, with what they had. So I, I yeah, I, th I think that the defense team did a, a very good job overall. When I spoke to Brock for our Nexium episode, he mentioned that Nexium is still very much in operation. So what do you think, based on this verdict, will happen now? That's a really good question. Uh, so what I can tell you is that there were current members of Nexium who were at the trial almost every day that I was there. I don't think they came every day, but uh, I saw them almost every day that I was there. Um, and they didn't want to interact with media. Uh, they very much kept to themselves. They were very insular. Um, but my understanding just from talking to people who are out of the group is that they are very much still 100% behind Keith, that uh, there are even people who have been associated with the criminal cases who are still very much behind Keith. And that Nexium in general is, you know, still fully operational, especially in Mexico. They have a strong presence. Thank you, sir. And um, while they've been weakened, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're non-existent. And I've heard rumors that DOS is still in operation. What was the most shocking thing that you heard during the trial? Um, I mean, honestly, every day was a surprise. <laughs> um. It was a really interesting, it, it, it's like I, the, I have not covered that. I've only covered a handful of trials, but I was covering this trial with other reporters who have covered more trials than I have. And the general takeaway in the media room was that this was in terms of just like the salaciousness of the details every day and like the new you know, revelations that were being uncovered on a daily basis. Like this is by far the most interesting trial that, that most of them had covered. So like you could show up to court one day 
And, you know, you would think that it would be a fairly straightforward or, or uneventful day. And you would hear testimony from like a sex toy website owner about like, you know, the puppy butt plugs that DOS bought uh, or the cages that DOS bought and, you know, to punish slaves. Uh, so every day is sort of brought a new host of of new details surrounding the case. So every day was kind of a surprise. This is, as much as it was lurid, this is also a trial that was packed full of incredibly upsetting, incredibly dark details. Was there ever a day when you felt like, I cannot listen to any more of this? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I would say the I, I felt like that pretty much every time um, you know, a, a former DOS slave or Daniela, for instance, the Mexican woman who uh, was involved with Keith Ranieri, who uh, was imprisoned in a room on his orders for more than two years. I mean, her testimony was really bleak, um, just just all brutal. Um, the day that was hardest for me, honestly, was when Lauren Salzman testified. Um, Lauren Salzman was, should I provide context as to who these people are? Like when I'm, okay. Um, Lauren Salzman was, uh, the daughter of Nancy Salzman, who is the co-founder of Nexium. Um, Keith and her and Nancy founded Nexium together in 1998, I want to say, perhaps 99. Um, and she was involved with Keith for almost 20 years romantically and was a, I think that Agnifilo referred to her as a Nexium Marine. Uh, she was very, very deeply embedded in the group and uh, was actually with Keith when he was arrested in Mexico and described, you know, in very harrowing detail how, you know, she was in one mode to protect Keith and that she sort of, you know, tried to block the Federales from gaining access to him. And he ended up hiding in a walk-in closet um, and, and what was so harrowing about her testimony was that I think Judge Garofis described her as a broken person. Like this is clearly, you know, a very visibly broken person on here. This was a woman who had given decades of her life to this man and to this organization and was just sort of in the process of figuring out exactly how she had bambo been bamboozled and was trying to pick the pieces of her life back up. And that was very obvious when she was on the stand. You mentioned in one of your articles that Keith Ranieri kept um, stringing along Lauren Saltzman, telling her that he was going to give her a child, and he never did. And she burnt through her peak fertility years. Exactly. Yeah. And that was really difficult. That was really brutal to hear because I, you know, I'm a parent and, uh, and just hearing that somebody could use that. I mean, that's what Keith did, though, right? Like, he was, you know, every, all of the reporting that I've done and all of the testimony at the trial indicated that, if nothing else, what he was really good at was keying in on the one thing that you wanted more than anything in the world or your one weakness and just using that as leverage against you. Um, so that's that's what he did to Lauren. And it was it was just brutal listening to how he just strung her along for decades like promising that she would be that he would be a father to her children and that never happened 
for her. And she, yeah, I mean, she wasted 20 years of her life for this man. Something else that we touched on briefly in the Nexium episode was Keith's previous involvement with multi-level marketing organizations. Do you think that based on the structure of Nexium, that he learned a lot about how to control women and how to control people's behavior from his time in those organizations? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not an expert in, in MLMs or anything. So I, I, I mean, I don't know if I can comment on the specifics of like what he learned in Amway or what he learned in Consumer Byline, Consumers Byline. But um, I mean, that's my understanding is that they operate in very much a similar way that Nexium did. I mean, Nexium was very much an MLM, right? Like, you know, you would get different color sashes as you ascended the ranks and you would gain prominence in the organization and ascend up the ranks depending on how many people you recruited. Sarah Edmonston in her interviews for CBC's Uncovered actually admitted that she was a golden girl because she kept bringing in the revenue. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's my understanding of how it operated. Um, and, and that's also my understanding of why they were so focused on recruiting really powerful, influential people uh, to the organization because they thought that it would help them gain more recruits, which is very much an MLM way of thinking. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't I don't know a ton about Amway or Consumers Byline or how they operated other than the fact that they are MLMs. But I, I absolutely think that that informed his view of how to run Nexium. The thing that has always uh, been most trouble, the thing that has always been the most troubling to me about the entire Nexium saga, is that Keith Raniere preyed on women's desire for empowerment and desire for feminist ideals, and turned that inside out onto these women, and turned them all the way into slaves. So I guess I would like to get your opinion on that and whether you think that that was deliberate and, uh, you know, a sinister plan. Well, the thing is, I, I mean, that was the biggest takeaway for me too. Like that was the thing that really stuck with me from the trial. But the thing is that Nexium was never a feminist group. I mean, just at the sur just at the surface level. I mean, if you look at the testimony about the Society of Protectors, which was the all male, um, group, sort of like the counterpart to Jeunesse, which was the all-female group and sort of the precursor to DOS. Um, I mean, the Society of Protectors and Jeunesse both taught on some level that men were superior to women. They were intellectually superior. They, uh, you know, were capable of making their own decisions and women were entirely reliant on men. They, you know, existed to be subjugated. They existed for subjugation. Um, women would rely, one major teaching was that women would rely on quote unquote tantrums to get what they wanted. Um, uh, that women were weak willed, uh, that they were manipulative, that they used their feminine wiles to sort of gain attention and to gain power and to gain the attention of men. And that was all they lived for. I mean, this was stuff that even if you weren't in DOS, and this is stuff that predates DOS. Like this, th this was stuff that if you were, 
if you were in Nexium for a long enough period of time and if you took enough classes, like this is what you would learn about the role that women played in society. So my biggest struggle in reporting on this was trying to understand how a woman could sit in a room and hear this and not immediately walk out of the room. Um, because I would think, you know, I'm, I'm a self-identified feminist and I would think, you know, if I heard that, if I, if I heard even somebody I trusted saying that I would, the first thing I would do is be like, okay, peace, I'm out. Um, but the thing is, I mean, and these were very, these were smart women. Um, but the thing is like at that point, they were just so deeply invested in the group and it's the same thing as Scientology, right? You know how Scientology, like everything, like all of the ideology on the surface level, it seems fairly standard and fairly normal. And sort of as you progress throughout the ranks of Scientology, it gets, you know, more and more bizarre and more and more outlandish. I think it was sort of the same thing with Nexium. One of the women who testified, Nicole, who was a DOS slave, said that it was like, boiling a frog in uh, hot water. Like if you boil a frog in hot water and the wa and the temperature is hot, you know, from the get-go that the frog is just going to jump out and it'll be safe. But if you put the frog in cold water and if you turn it up very, very, very slowly, then the frog won't even realize what's happening to it and it'll just boil to death. And I thought that was a very powerful and very concise summation of what she went through and what, and what Nexium put women through when they entered the group. They sort of got them acclimated to this type of ideology so that when they, when it manifested itself in an extreme form in DOS, they had already been, you know, accustomed to it to a degree, if that makes any sense. EJ, thank you very much for updating us on the trial. The other reason that we're here is to talk about a phenomenon that you discovered while you were covering the trial because you had met two people who had done this, and the subject is cult hopping. So let's talk about how you became aware of cult hopping and what cult hopping actually is. Sure. So I was actually not aware of it until I started reporting on Nexium. Um, it was after Mark Vicente's testimony, I believe. Um, Mark Vicente, uh, was a former Nexium member who left in 2017 and during cross-examination, it was revealed that he had been involved in, uh, another cult. Uh, and I, I think it's J.R. Knight. I'd have to pull up the actual, yeah, Ramtha, yes, who believe and they believe in like a 15,000 year old deity. Um, yeah. Uh, so he was in that prior to Nexium, and by coincidence, I happened to be talking to his ex-girlfriend, uh, who also was involved in Nexium for a short time. They actually got involved together and was also a member of a cult, more of like a religious evangelical cult prior to her involvement in Nexium. And at first, you know, I thought it was just kind of a coincidence. Oh, these two people who were in a relationship, like they had both been involved in cults prior to their involvement in Nexium, but I started talking to cult experts and I realized that this was actually very common, that when somebody leaves a cult and is sort of disillusioned with that cult, then they're actually fairly vulnerable to becoming drawn into another one. And that was uh, really interesting to me. It wasn't something that I had seen widely reported. Can you tell me what this couple told you about their experiences called hopping? 
and how they transitioned from one group to another? Sure. So um, it was actually kind of a coincidence. Um, so I am, uh, I'm fascinated by ASMR. Like I'm really interested in it. And yeah, yeah, I, f- I find it fascinating. And so I somehow found that this woman had recorded an ASMR video about her experience with Nexium. And I was like, oh, wow, like this is a story. You know, I need to get in touch with this woman. Um, and when we finally got on the phone, she started telling me her story. And it sounded like Tia Banks is her name. And so I found her ASMR video. And I was like, I, I figured I would just, you know, like a hit about this ASM artist who was in Nexium. Um, but as she started telling me her story, I realized I had been in court earlier that day. And I realized that uh, she said that she had gotten in with her boyfriend, her ex-boyfriend. And I realized just certain details of the story that her ex-boyfriend was Mark Vicente, who is the guy who I had just seen testify for the prosecution that day. Um, so it was just it was just kind of a coincidence that like. I had reached out to her already, but, um, but yeah, I mean, Tia was involved in the radio church of God, which was sort of this ev- very, very fundamentalist evangelical Christian group that didn't let women, you know, get divorced, didn't let them have premarital sex, didn't let them wear makeup. And she had grown up in this organization and she was excommunicated because she had gotten divorced, I believe. And, um, she was kind of afloat and trying to figure out, uh, what she should do next, because this was basically what she had grown up in. Uh, this is all she knew and, uh, was very skeptical about joining another, you know, very dogmatic organization. And that's when she and Mark were recruited by Nexium basically. Um, and they were recruited because he was a, he is a filmmaker and he made a movie called what the bleep do we know? And, uh, so he was recruited by Nancy Salzman and Barbara Boucher who were, uh, Nancy was the co-founder of Nexium and Barbara Boucher was a, at the time a very high ranking member of Nexium and they wanted him to sort of work with the company and make films for them. And, uh, one of the things that Tia told me was that she kind of got sucked in because she was talking to Nancy and she mentioned that she was lactose intolerant and Nancy sort of talked to her. She said, well, you don't necessarily have to be lactose intolerant. And Tia was like, well, what do you mean? And they basically had like a very emotional conversation and Tia tried milk the next day and she was fine. And that, that kind of got her interested in the group. And she was like, we need to check this out. Do you know why this guy left Ramatha and why he decided to get involved in Nexium? Well, he talked about it during cross-examination and I actually talked to him a little bit um, the other day when he was in court because he was, he showed up uh, the last few days of court. Um, I mean, basically Ranieri's line was, oh, Ramtha was a cult, but this is not a cult. Like we have to sort of like deprogram you. Um, and, and this is actually very common for, um, for cult hoppers, I guess, quote unquote, cult hoppers, um, that 
they'll be more likely to be drawn into another group if the leader of that organization is like, oh, well, that wasn't right for you, but this one is different, and here's how it's different. And I think Ramtha was sort of, you know, more hippy-dippy, less of a more, you know, ostensibly intellectual, uh, you know, scientifically. I think I think Nexium was very good at sort of cloaking all of the self-help uh, psychobabble in sort of, you know, very research-based, uh, more straightforward jargon. If that if that makes any sense, um, so so I think that he was sort of in a unique position to be poached by Nexium uh, for that reason, and I think Tia was too um, because you know Radio Church of God was very strict, very very fundamentalist, and Nexium didn't really have those types of restrictions. It more seemed like it seemed like a form of psychological self inquiry, less than you know a dogmatic system of principles. So people might find this inconceivable that someone would leave a group and then go into another group. So can you explain why somebody would call top? In your article, you talk about somebody maybe only being disillusioned with that particular leader or with one particular part of the doctrine. Well, I think it's really important to note uh, that... And it's something that was really surprising to me when I was reporting on the trial, too, is that there is no singular profile for anybody who is vulnerable to being recruited by a cult. Um, You know, I've talked to a number of cult experts at this point, and time and again, they have told me that anybody could be recruited uh, by a cult. You don't have to be particularly... You don't have to be any type of person. You don't have to be like psychologically vulnerable or damaged or, you know, naive or stupid in any way. Uh, You certainly, you know, don't have to be stupid. Uh, In fact, most of the people who are recruited for cults have higher IQs than the average person. Um, Really what it's dependent on is the circumstances you're in at a given point in your life. So for instance, if you are in a moment of transition, if you've just lost your job or if you've just had a breakup or if you've, you know, just experienced a monumental change in your life, then you are more susceptible to being recruited to an organization like this. And I think for both Mark and Tia, um, you know, especially for Tia, like she had just lost her whole support system essentially because her family was still in radio church of God. Um, like she was very much, and she was, and she was questioning, she was questioning like her entire upbringing. Like she was very much susceptible to being recruited to another type of organization that would provide the answers that the radio church of God did not. And, um, you know, during the Nexium trial, she wasn't a cult, she wasn't involved in an organization prior to this. But Nicole, uh, who is one of the former DOS slaves, also she was borderline suicidal at the time that she was recruited by Allison Mack for DOS. And she, in fact, two days after she told Allison Mack that she was suicidal, according to the emails presented at trial, um, is when Allison Mack asked her for her collateral and told her about DOS. So I think. Um, I think the reasons why one would cult up are really the reasons why anybody, you know, seeks anything 
in life, they're struggling and they're looking for something that will help alleviate that struggle. So how much do we know about cult hopping from a scientific or an anecdotal perspective? How common is it? So, I mean, I, I, I think to provide a firm answer to that question, you should probably talk to cult experts about that. Um, my understanding, just in the interviews that I did for the piece, is that it's very under-researched um, because obviously cults aren't really open to researchers coming and, you know, adhering to the protocol for psychological studies to, to research them. Um, like for obvious reasons, they're not open to that. So, so cults are very under-researched and cult hopping is very under-researched. Um, my impression was that it's fairly common. To an outsider, it would seem like going from one cult to another is a suspension of an intellectual drive that maybe you've already primed the pump and now you're susceptible to other things. What's your sense of what happens there from experts? I don't think it's a suspension of intellectual drive. I think it's, if anything, it's exercising your intellectual drive. Um, I think it's a suspension of a certain part of your brain, but intellectual curiosity is certainly not, that's certainly not it. If anything, it's, it's um, showing that you have a great deal of intellectual curiosity. My understanding from talking to cult experts was that people who cult up and people who join cults in general are people who want to change the world. Um, you know, they're fairly idealistic. They're fairly driven. Um, they and and they are looking for like-minded people and and a sense of community and people who share their goals in this regard. Um, so I, I yeah I mean I don't I don't think it's necessarily like a suspension. I I, I don't think it necessarily means that you're like deficient in some way. Um, if, if you go from one super restrictive and dogmatic organization to another, I think if anything, it means that you still have the same questions and you still are looking for answers. And if anything, you have more intellectual curiosity than the average person. So I think that sort of explains why people who have, who join cults tend to have higher IQs than the average person, because it takes somebody with a higher IQ and a higher degree of intellectual curiosity to answer the, to, to ask the questions that keep driving them to these organizations. So a natural comment that somebody might make here is that, well, maybe these people go from a situation where they have a lot of structure in their lives. And once they leave, they lose that structure. So moving to another group that provides them structure is very important or is something that they need. Do you believe that certain people are just predisposed to craving structure? Do I think that it's an inherent psychological trait that you need, that, that there are some people who are just are more drawn to structure than others? No, I, I don't really. Um, I don't. I think, if anything, from reporting on this trial, I think my main takeaway has been what we were talking about earlier, that it really isn't something inherent to somebody's psychological profile, that anybody can be vulnerable to this. And, and when I say this, I don't mean, you know, recruitment to 
a cult. I mean, recruitment to anything, like any organized movement whatsoever, be it activism, be it soul cycle, be it, you know, just any community that is united by a shared value, you know, whether it's good or bad. I think that anybody at any given point in their life, you know, if they're experiencing any vulnerability, um, is susceptible to that. And, um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think there is one personality type. I, I think that it's a confluence of, of factors that bring you to that place. And I don't necessarily like, you know, I, I mentioned soul cycle, I mentioned activism. Like I don't necessarily think that that desire for community and that desire for answers and that desire for change, I don't necessarily think it's bad. Um, I, I, yeah, I think, I think in many ways it can be extremely productive. Um, but it just depends on who it depends. It really depends on who gets a hold of you. Really? I, yeah, I mean, I think there's a world in which a lot of the people who ended up in Nexium could have been doing, you know, could have been, you know, prominent activists, like, you know, could have been attending Black Lives Matter protests or whatever. Like it's, uh, I, I think it's really, it's, it's really just one of those things where it's entirely dependent on circumstance. And I really do believe just judging from the incredibly like smart and thoughtful and introspective and really wide ranging in terms of like class background, like people that I've talked to, I really do think that it is entirely circumstantial. While you were researching that article, did you come across any information that really shocked you or surprised you? Yeah, I mean, I think it's what we were just talking about. I think that there is this stereotype that the people who end up in cults are, you know, very naive, very idealistic, very uneducated, very young. And um, time and again, in talking to cult experts, uh, I have learned that that is not the case at all, that there is no particular profile, except maybe, you know, they tend to be more educated. They tend to be slightly, they tend to skew slightly more middle class or upper middle, upper middle class. But other than that, there really is no demographic, um, for people who are recruited to cults. It, it really is all across the board. That was very surprising to me. And I think it was really helpful to me in covering the trial to become aware of that very early on. Generally, with trials like this, when there's lots of lurid details and, you know, there are lots of female survivors coming on and testifying, there is a potential for the media to take the narrative in a certain direction. Do you think that the media got anything wrong here? Yeah, I mean, this is something that I've thought about a lot, actually, because it's not necessarily something that the media got wrong uh, <laughs> I think in some ways the media got it right. I just think that too much attention was paid to it. Um, from, uh, so, so let me, I'll explain. <laughs> um, so, so when I heard, when I first heard about Nexium, um, this was in 2017, I think I had known about it before because I had read the Vanity Fair piece about the Bronfman sisters and their involvement in the group. But, um, I learned about DOS the way that everybody else learned about DOS, which was the New York Times article um, where Sarah Edmondson came forward about the branding. I, I couldn't really believe it, honestly. Um, and at that point, 
like um, I was working elsewhere and um, I probably shouldn't say where, but, um, but I, I was working elsewhere and um, that story had come out and my boss wanted us to aggregate it. And I remember there was some debate over whether or not we would call it a sex cult. Um, and I actually took the position that we, at the, at the time, the New York Times wasn't referring to DOS as a sex cult. I think the headline was fairly restrained. Um, and it was only places like the Daily Mail or the Sun that were referring it, to it as a sex cult. And I remember I took the position that was like, I don't think we should call it a sex cult. Like, I, this all sounds really extreme. Like, all these allegations sound wild. Like, do we really think that the girl from Smallville recruited a bunch of sex slaves for, like, this guy from Albany in the in this cult like maybe we should exercise caution like we don't know if this is a sex cult and um as it turns out that's absolutely what happened like that like according to the testimony in the trial at least like it was a sex cult um so i think the media got it right <laughs> in that in that regard um that said I think that a lot of the coverage has been extremely focused on a lot of the salacious details associated with DOS. And, um, and it's kind of hard to avoid that, right? Because they're just so extreme. But um, at the same time, this has been a pattern of coercion and extreme control that Keith Ranieri has been exercising over women in particular um, for years prior to DOS. A lot of people talk about the physical trauma that these women suffered, but the part for me that I couldn't get over for months was the description of women being forced to watch videos of beheadings and other unbelievably disgusting acts. Yeah, the fear studies. Yeah, those are those are crazy. And, you know, Daniela's testimony, uh, that predates DOS by her imprisonment predates DOS by five or six years. And, you know, just here, just seeing her break down on the stand like that um, and, and talking about, there's no other word for it other than torture that he subjected her to, even prior to her alleged imprisonment is... I mean, this was something that this guy was doing for years before DOS. So to focus on next, to call Nexium just a sex cult and to focus just on DOS, I think is a pretty big error in terms of trying to understand Keith Raniere and what, um, and what his goals were and what Nexium was about. Do you get the sense that the women who testified in the trial are all the way out on Keith? Or do you get the sense that some of them reluctantly testified? Lauren seemed like out, like she was just like done with him. And it was really like incredible to see that unfolding on the witness stand, like sort of this woman just realizing how much she had squandered on this man and this organization. EJ, thank you so much for being here today to tell us more about the trial and to describe a unique phenomenon, which is cult hopping. You can follow EJ Dixon at at EJ Dixon on Twitter, or you can read her articles in Rolling Stone. 
Thank you for listening to On Belief, a podcast about cults. I'm Karen Geyer. You can follow me at at K-A-R-E-N-G-E-I-E-R or follow the podcast on Instagram or Twitter at OnBeliefPod. And you can contribute to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Karen Geyer. You can also visit our website. It's just OnBelief.com. Next week. I think probably the saddest thing that we see is you know honestly for me it's a tie between how in debt people get and seeing people lose relationships with friends and family because of the companies and I think for me I think that one of the I I would agree with Katie absolutely but then also when you've got things like Amway where I, I know Amway specifically has a procedure for this. So when you die, you can actually like bequeath your business onto your, your, your children, <laughs> your Amway yeah. business. It's just, it's just another way that they try to get people to put as much as they can into the business. Because if you make this super successful, you can pass this on to your kids and then they won't have to work for their entire lives. Like obviously that's not really going to happen, but they are so good at lying, they convince people that that can happen. Multi-level marketing.